Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we do believe that you are great. Um, we praise you. We believe, God, that you are creator. <clears throat> we believe that we are broken. We believe that you sent your son to redeem us. <clears throat> and so, Lord, we pray today that you would help us. Help us to see you in your fullness, to see how much you love us and care for us. Lord, that you would help us to come to conclusions in our life, that we might serve you more diligently, live for you. in a way in which we completely abandon ourselves and fully chase after you. Lord, we're grateful that we have the, the privilege to worship and gather this morning. And as we open your word now, Lord, we believe that it's true. Would you speak to us through it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, if you would, um, if you have a Bible, open it to Mark 8. Um, there should be one in the seat back, uh, or in the under the seat in front of you, and uh, if not, you'll, it'll be on the screens too. Mark 8, 1 through 21 is where we'll be reading from this morning. Um, <clears throat> just want to make a quick note. Um, one, uh, <clears throat> I'm Jeff Tame, I'm going to talk about you for a second, that's cool, so uh, just so you know. Uh, you know, it's such an incredible thing what <clears throat> we have We've spent some time with Jeff and Tammy since they've come home, and um, it's, it's an incredible thing um, what, they, what they've done. When you think about an orphanage with, you know, 200 Tegans lying in beds, and you think about this Tegan crying on this stage, you seeing her, us praying for it's, it's truly, it's truly an incredible thing. And it's an incredible thing that a little girl is, is being loved for and cared for. And just so you know, what Tegan was doing on the stage is what Tammy and Jeff, depends on the day, right? That's just kind of where Tegan is right now because she hasn't had a lot of touch. She hasn't had a lot of care in her life. And so being touched and being held is really hard for Tegan because it's something very abnormal to that seven-year-old that was on the stage this morning. And so just a little bit of context, I think it kind of wraps around um, how you can pray for them. But I think in this greater, right, this, this greater sense of this, this definite um, worldwide crisis of the orphan um, that is caused by <clears throat> very terrible governments, very terrible people, um, brokenness of this world at the very foundations. And evidently, God has called us as a church to um, not, we, we can't be, like, we can't resolve it, but we can be a part of the resolution. And uh, so at 1030, if you want to pray for orphan care, that's happening today. Um, but I just needed to give you a little context because I just had a little moment down front where I couldn't do anything. So um, <clears throat> thought I'd share that with you. Um, I hope that's helpful for you as you think about the orphan care, as you think about the orphan. We just had a real live example of something that is not abnormal, but actually is a bit more normative in the world than you might think. So this morning, we're in Mark 8, 1 through 21. 
Mark 8, 1 through 21. And in this text, where we're going to be is the title's Disciple, Faith Grows. And there's a section here in Mark where where we're really coming to a transitional point in Mark. And this transitional point in the book of Mark is where where Jesus is going to begin to change the, 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 the point, the the trajectory of his ministry is about to go fast toward the cross. In this moment, it's leading up to where he's going to go up onto a mountain. God's going to kind of anoint him. There's going to be a supernatural act we're going to read about in a few weeks. And, and well, in a, in a few months, probably, we have Christmas coming up. And, and what's going to happen is Jesus is going to, and like, like Flint, like he is going to look toward the cross and he's going to begin to move hard toward it. And so in this section of scripture, we see this coming to a conclusion. We actually see that there's this kind of, in Mark 6 and now in Mark 8, Jesus is going to, and and as Mark writes it, he's going to display how he kept trying to beat their hard heads to have have an understanding of who he was. And the thing that we see about the disciples and what we've seen kind of back and forth as we've been in Mark is the disciples are dull, right, like me. And you, right? I just called you dull this morning. Um, they're, they're dull, and the Pharisees are blind. And dullness and blindness are very real spiritual attributes of people. All of us, if we're honest, have been in seasons of blindness, and all of us have been in seasons of dullness. And in this, in the book of Mark, he's going to reveal over and over how dull the disciples are. They don't quite get it. They don't quite understand. They tend to not remember. They tend to not reflect well on what has happened. They, they tend not to remember the one they're walking alongside of. And the Pharisees continue to try to push and prod and prove that he is wrong because they simply are unwilling to see him as he is. See, Jesus and the disciple, this is, again, the edge and the turning point. And, and in, this, in this text, I believe, and I think as Mark writes this, I think he's trying to reveal the, the character and the nature of Jesus and the longing and the desire of Jesus, even through kind of negative illustrations of it. I believe in this room today that scattered throughout here from the one-year-old, I don't know if there's a one-year-old in here, but if there is, the one-year-old to the oldest, there is, there is an incredible amount of potential. And maybe, maybe when we say potential, not even just maybe that one-year-old to say, oh, there's so much potential of that life. Absolutely. And we would all agree to that, right? But even to that, the oldest person where you feel like your life is done, right? There is so much potential for tomorrow of what God could use you to do. There's so much potential in our lives to do so much good for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. There is so much potential, but so much of that potential will go unrealized because we tend to chase after the wrong dreams. We, ch- we tend to chase after the wrong things, to pursue the wrong things, to want to achieve the wrong things, to, to be satisfied in the wrong things. And this isn't always just bad things. That's where our mind first goes, oh yeah, the, we pursue these bad things, and these bad things do bad things to us. But it's not just bad things, it's good things. A lot of times, our unrealized potential for the kingdom of God doesn't just happen in bad things, it happens even in good things. They're, they're, they're good, they're just not the, the best and only thing, and that's Jesus. 
Because see, when we meet him and when we see him face to face, that's all we're going to answer for. And this, this best and only thing is what, what Jesus is going to continue to try to push the disciples toward, but they're dull in hearing it. He's going to push the Pharisees to see it, but they're blind. They can't see it at all. Because in many ways, they were chasing the wrong dream. The disciples, some of their dream was, man, when Jesus makes this kingdom, I'm going to be the vice president. I'm going to be sitting beside him. I'm going to be Mike Pence. I'm going to put the cabinet together. It's going to be awesome. They'll have conversations about it. Who's going to sit at your right? Who's going to sit at your left when you, when you install your kingdom? They, they had the wrong dream. They loved their arm being around Jesus. They just didn't want to kneel down to Jesus. And some of us find ourselves in that same place. We love for people to see our arm around Jesus. See, he doesn't, that's not the position that we take with the Savior. It's a bowing down. It's a submission that we place before him. So let's read the text. What we're going to do is read 1 through 10. <clears throat> there's kind of three sections of this. One is the feeding of the 4,000. Then there's going to be some Pharisee issues. They're going to go across. And then Jesus is going to explain and express kind of this issue of the disciples not fully understanding the miracles and asking many of the wrong questions. So 1 through 10. Um, now, this, this passage is about a miracle to the Gentiles. And so the feeding of the 5,000, which we read about a few weeks ago, it was a different miracle. Some will say these are the same. They're not the same. This is a different miracle. The end of this text will truly prove, at, in, in like 20 and 21, will truly prove that this is not, these are, these are two separate miracles. One was to a predominantly Jewish, the 5,000 was to a predominantly Jewish group of people. This is in the capitalist where the minority would have been Jews and the majority would have been Gentiles. And so this was uh, the feeding of the 4,000 was this you know, huge miracle also to the Gentile group of people. And so in this, just so we're clear, even before we read it, Jesus is going to say, I am for the Jews and I am for the Gentiles. And what he's saying is for all peoples. I love and I care. I care for him. So 1 through 10, the feeding of the 4,000 reads, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to him, and he said to them, Now, if you go backwards in, in 731, it says that he was in the region of Decapolis, which again would have been this minority Jews, majority Gentile population. So there was this, and it was somewhat of a desolate place. And so they're in this desolate place, and all of these people had gathered around, and they were hungry. They had nothing to eat. And he called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. And this compassion is this, almost it's a deeper word here. It's this groaning, this longing for them to be okay. And so on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, understand, this is, they've had nothing to eat for three days, meaning that that's not like... If I didn't eat breakfast and I got to eat it too, right, I'm super hungry, right? And so and nobody else is with me on that, I guess. And, uh, and so, I mean, this is three days without a meal. And so this is not just some sort of like, man, it'd be good to eat right now. This is a dire situation where th there's going to be issues that happen if people don't get some food. And so Jesus has compassion on them. And he says in verse 3, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him. Now remember, they've fed 5,000 before. 
How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They were dull. Now, I'm going to give them kind of like the benefit of it here, that maybe things were so crazy. Maybe there was all these people rushing around them that, that they had become overwhelmed with the ministry that was happening. And I, I would actually give, let them off a little bit. That, do you ever get like that, that you just forget things because things get so busy? I think that's where maybe the disciples were in this. And so, so there, there was all these people around in verse 4, and, and his disciples answered him, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? In 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed toward the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. So we have seven loaves few fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied is important. Underline it. And they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now get this. This isn't like, you know, they went, they, 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 they went to like, you know, bonefish grill and got a plate of fish. They went to like an all-you-can-eat catfish buffet in Little Rock, Arkansas, right? Like they, they had more food. They, they were satisfied. I mean, they had, and the reason I say that, I used to go to this place called the Catfish Hole in Arkansas with my aunt and uncle, and my brothers and I would have fish-eating contests as kids. And just so you know, when you're full on fish, you are full, right? And this is, uh, they, they, they had had all they could eat. Um, to where there was even excess. And so they were satisfied. Satisfied. They were in dire situation, and they ate, and they were satisfied. And there were about 4,000, verse 9, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got, them, got into the boat and the disciples and went away to the district of, El, of Del Manutha. And so here in this passage, in this like little section, there, there's this need, this desire, what Mark is displaying to us toward the disciples, what Jesus is desiring for them to grow as disciples and grow in their faith. He, he wants them to grow in clarity. He wants them to grow in clarity. And he gives kind of three lessons which in this text. Now, remember, the message of Jesus throughout his whole ministry and throughout the book of Mark, which he clearly says is, is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the message that Jesus would have been proclaiming that day was a message he always proclaimed. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, I am the son of God who has come. I am God. I am going to sacrifice my life. Repent give yourself over to the kingdom. Give yourself over to my ways. And so Jesus is going to continue to proclaim this same message. And, and he wants them to grow in clarity. And the, the first thing that he wants them to grow in clarity of is that Jesus, that he is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. And this, both of these miracles, the 5,000 and the 4,000, they're a picture. They're a picture, and it goes all the way backwards to Moses. And manna from heaven and God providing miraculously food day, every, every day for the people of Israel as they, as they left um, exile and they moved into the wilderness. And it was God's provision for them. 
So as God brought manna down from heaven and used Moses to deliver the people, what the miracles, these miracles are really showing is that Jesus was a better Moses, that Jesus was God, that Jesus wasn't looking up to God and asking God to do something. He gave thanks and he did it because he was God. It's the number one point of contention about Jesus in our world. I mean, to the point where I've preached sermons that Jesus was God and men have come down and said, you cannot say that you don't know. And I can say that, and I do know because the word of God tells us that Jesus was God, and it was the primary thing that he does. Even in this, he's going to say, I am God, I am God, I am God. And so Jesus is the bread of life, and Jesus is the better Moses. Not only that Jesus is the bread of life, but Jesus is the bread of life for all people. That Jesus wasn't just the bread of life for this small pocket of of Jewish people, that Jesus was the bread of life for all all people, all the way back to one of the first Gentiles, one of the first outside of the Jewish, right, through the line of Rahab, as the Old Testament, a prostitute in the Old Testament, that, that we are, the Gentile people are of the line of, right, that, 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 that Jesus is the bread of life for all people. These, again, were primarily Gentile people, and there's this large statement that's being made in this miracle, is that Jesus is for all people. He is for all races, all tribes, all tongues, all socioeconomic statuses. There is no higher, there is no lower, that Jesus loves all and he came to redeem all. Jesus is the bread of life for all people. And the other thing in this text that he was clearly saying is that Jesus, that he is the bread that satisfies. He is the bread that satisfies. He is the bread where you can never get enough, where there's whole portions left to eat, where you, 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 can never, you can never eat too much. Now, you think about it like this. Like for me, I love, there's certain things I love. Like I, I, like, I like Dairy Queen ice cream cake. I don't know if anybody's with me like that. I really like steak. Um, I like a little bit of potato on the side, but if I have steak, it, like the potatoes just filler and waste, right? Like it's important that... Like, I, these are things I like. And I, I like to think of the idea of, like, a 30-some ounce, like, steak in front of me. But I know the reality. At some point, I will become miserable eating that steak, right? Because, because there's a point where it becomes too much. And there's nothing in this world that, in excess, it, it ends up looking badly. It ends up not satisfying. It ends up harming Jesus is the only thing that you can excessively push into and you will never get enough. You will always be satisfied and he will always give you more and more and more. Jesus, his love, his grace, his care, the more you push into it, the more satisfied you will become, the more whole you will become, the more loving you will become, the more compassionate you will become, the more joy that you will possess, the more and more of more of all that he is in his kingdom values will come into our lives and it is the thing that we need more than everything, much more than a Dairy Queen cake and much more than a piece of steak. I just had both of those this week, so they're on my mind. My wife got older this week, and so uh, it's hard. It's hard being married to someone in their mid-30s. So uh, anyway, I got her a pair of reading glasses. So <laughs> it's a true story. So she can't see as good. She's getting old. So, uh, 
Uh, I love you. So I won't say that next service. <laughs> so Jesus will say it like this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. See, this, this is true because he is the bread of life. He is the way to the Father. And, and the question that we, we have to ask ourselves, I, I think, and it's a hard question, but what is, see, we, we all believe there's, there's a bread of life that satisfies. The question is, what is that bread for you? And we can say we believe, John 14, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But where is it that you find satisfaction? It's, I think if we honestly answer that question, that's a, that's a challenging question. It's one of those questions that makes us look deeper into the heart. It says, what is it that I really find satisfaction in? What is it that I truly find life in? Again, this is one of those things. It's not just the bad things. It's sometimes good things. If my children are where I find my satisfaction and they divert off of a course I want, I will become miserable and unsatisfied and angry, right? Because I'm, I'm looking to something to bring satisfaction in my heart and life that just wasn't made to. My spouse, my job. Not, none of those are bad things, but they're not the thing. What do you believe? Is Jesus the bread of life? Is he the all-satisfying one for you? See, this is the second time they had seen this miracle of epic proportion, yet they were still unclear that Jesus was the bread of life, that he was the all-satisfying one, that he was God, and that all things were possible for him, and all satisfaction could come through him. So growing in clarity was something that Jesus was pushing these disciples to more and more and more. Let's read on in verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. <clears throat> so they, they, they kind of went on. They got in a boat. They went on to another region. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven <clears throat> to test him. Now, notice that word here, to test him. This is uh, kind of inklings of Satan tempting or testing Jesus. And so this is this moment where, and it's going to be very similar. Hey, like, show me a real sign right now, just as the evil one does in Matthew 4. He's going to say, hey, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, do this, do that, do this. And here they do the same. It says, send a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, this is that, uh, this is that deep, like, right? This is this deep, like, angst, uh, frustration, our, our two-year-old has been doing this in our life where we'll say, Karis, take your shoes off. And I don't know where she gets this. I think it's her mom. I'm, I'm all over Deb today. But she'll go, oh, and then she'll sit down and take her shoes off, right? This, and Jesus has, this, Jesus has this moment of sighing, and it's this deep groaning of, oh. He sighed deeply in his spirit, even in the depths of who, who he was. And said, why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, which is kind of a crazy statement because Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been rising the dead. He's, he's, he, just, he just made, <clears throat> he just fed 4,000 people. And what they were saying is, <clears throat> it's not enough. We want more. If you'll do this, then I'll believe. If you'll do this, then I'll believe. If you'll do this, then I'll believe. If you'll do this, then I will believe. Always pushing, always wanting more. In the statement that he says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, when you read that, <clears throat> first glance, is it's just kind of this, no sign's going to be given, and he walks away. That's not what he was saying. What Jesus was saying was, I'm done with you. It was the form of an oath, really, the, the language reads in the original text. It was really the form of an oath of saying that, that, that you, are, you are cast away. That your hearts are so hard that I'm not revealing anything to you. In some ways, condemnation was given toward these men in this text. Now, that might mess with your perfect, loving, kind, pansy, Jesus in your mind, which our culture kind of pushes towards us. Jesus was not a pansy. Jesus was the strongest man that has ever walked on this planet. And in this moment of their hardness of heart, Jesus says, no sign is going to be given and probably never would have even been helpful anyway because these men's hearts were so hard. See, what is being revealed is this need as, as disciples, how do we grow in our faith? We grow in consecration. We grow in consecration and yieldness and surrender to him. Because if we don't, there's grave danger for our life. And so maybe in this we see that, that there's a need for a conclusion in a person's life. There's a need for a conclusion to, to come to a place in life where we make a conclusion on who Jesus is and what he has done and how we're going to live because of it. Where, where we come to a place where we stop asking, if you'll do this, I'll believe. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. If you'll do this, have you ever done that? Anyone? Right? And this is what they were doing over and over and over. See, the danger of unbelief is that no sign will be given to you because you keep seeking. Now, hear this. It's not wrong to have questions. And it's not wrong to ponder things. But it is wrong to do it forever. Six months, a year, maybe two. I don't know. I don't know the numbers on it. But at some point in your life, you are, you are treading in dangerous waters if all that you ever do is ask questions. If all that you ever are is a skeptic, if all that you ever are is an antagonist, it is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. Because the danger is the longer you remain a skeptic, the longer, longer you are waiting for another sign, the, the longer you wait, the harder your heart becomes. And the harder your heart becomes, the harder it is for you you to turn. So again, it's okay to have questions, but it's not okay to not make a decision. See, God will be patient for a season, but the two dangers that, again, we face is our heart growing hard and God turning away, and God does turn away. The reality for these men is nothing would have ever been enough for them. 
And maybe that's where you sit today if there's a skeptic in the room. The fear or the danger might be that nothing will ever be enough and you will spend eternity separated from God because of the hardness of your heart. But maybe today, even as we read this text, even as he reveals this to us, maybe God is softening your heart today that you will make a decision, that you will turn in faith, and you will follow him as your Lord. See, today is a day for, for, for you who have questions, who are wanting another sign, to, to simply lay down your questions and simply say, I believe. Genuinely, from your depth, simply consecrate your life saying, God, I believe. Jesus, I believe you came. I believe you died. I believe you rose. I believe you're the king of kings. And, and I'm, I want to serve you with the rest of my life. And see, this is an, an initial Right? This, this is some, speaking of this initial consecration, this initial surrender in our life. And then what he is going to ask from you tomorrow and the next day and the next is there's two kinds of consecration, I think. Initial and daily. And this daily consecration of saying, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I believe you've done what you've said you've done. My life is yours. I'm going to live it for you and your glory. And so he's calling us in this text to grow in our clarity as disciples, to grow in consecration. And then third and last is to grow in communion, to grow in communion. So growing in communion, 14 through 21, read this, and we'll kind of go back now. He's going to go backwards up and deal with the feeding of the 4,000. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. So here we got bread again. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Or leaven was oftentimes just, you could use even the word in there, evil. The leaven, the evil, this is how it was frequently used. It gets in, right, and it ruins the whole batch. That's the idea, leaven. So this evil gets in, it ruins the whole, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus was aware of this and said to them, now this is this moment where Jesus is, if we see Jesus blow up, like, I'm done with you. He, he just had this incredible miracle. He just dealt with the Pharisees. And now, now he says, hey, be careful. This is really dangerous for you. If you let evil in, it's going to mess you up. And the evil of Herod and the evil of the Pharisees, these doubts, these things where you're not believing, if you let this in, guys, it's going to kill you. And they turn around and they go, dude, we don't have any bread. <laughs> it was this moment where they, they weren't hearing what Jesus was saying. Now, I'm just going to, like, go into that parent world a minute. Like, I, I can relate to this. Like, I have this, like, great oration for my family of, like, what we're going to be and what we're going to do and how we're not going to act. And then, like, two seconds later, the most ridiculous thing is said. And then dad just goes, and I have to apologize to everyone when they go to bed, and it's bad, and I cry, because I was probably... And this is this moment where Jesus is God. He doesn't blow up in the way I would, and where he had to ask for forgiveness because he was without sin. But Jesus is going to go into them now. And he's going to try to bring clarity. And then when he goes in, he says... So, so in verse 17, And Jesus, aware of this, said, so he knew what they were saying, why are you, he's going to give them eight questions here. 
Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Bang. Do you not perceive or understand? Bang. Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes? Do you not see? Having ears? Do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And it was this moment of Jesus pushing into them. And he's pushing into them and saying that you need to grow in communion with me. You're missing this all. You're wanting your arm around me, but you're not reflecting. You're not remembering. You're not listening. You're not seeing. See, there's this need in here. What we see is a need for reflection in which this is what they weren't doing. When they jumped in the boat, they were moving to the next thing. And I'm guessing what they weren't doing is saying, whoa, what just happened? And they weren't internalizing the depths of what they had seen Jesus do, the depths of where he had been, the depths of who he was, and, and the implications of that. They were, they were moving through some things. And this is maybe their problem was that they were, they were dealing, they were too familiar. They were in too close a proximity. Doesn't that happen to us sometimes? If you, right, some of you have the story like you grew up in the church, right? Nine months before you were born, you were attending. And you grew up in it your whole life, and it's very dull to you because proximity sometimes creates dullness. Where when the preacher proclaims good news, your hearts aren't strangely warm to it because you've just heard it so much. But it really is the greatest news in the whole world, and you know that, but you don't feel that. See, the need for reflection, to deeply reflect and, and take those things that he has said and done to heart. This is what they weren't doing. And the need for remembering, right, these are the bangs, these are the questions. What he's saying is, don't forget what I have done. Remember, remember how I've been good to you. Remember my miracles, remember my works, remember these things. So I would say that works in two ways for us in this room today. It works in one way. Remember the, the biblical narrative. Remember the story. Remember the truthfulness of the text and what the Savior has done and what has been revealed in God's word. Remember who God is, that he is good and all satisfying, that he is gracious to us. Remember those things about God. Don't forget them. But I would say then in a second way, remember what he has done for you personally. Remember when he was there for you, when the bottom of your life fell out. Remember when you closed your eyes at night and all that you could do is cry, but God came down and was a very real presence for you when you were at the loneliest place in your life. Remember when you went through the trial, the storm, the joys. Remember what he has done. But what do we do often? We forget. And when we forget, typically it's because we didn't reflect well on who he is and what he has done. So remembering, reflecting, growing in communion with him, these two things are, are necessary. 
Because see, at the end of the day, what is he calling us to do? To be disciples who are growing up in our faith. Growing up in our faith to serve him and his good purposes in this world. To bring him glory. Not to live for my little kingdom and my little world and my wants and my desires, but for his kingdom, for his wants, for his desires in life. For us as a church to participate in this great work of the kingdom. And as we grow up, Right? We're growing in clarity. We're growing in surrender, consecration. We're growing in communion with him. And as we do this, we become this vibrant movement called the church, where individually we are obeying him. Corporately, together, we're putting our arms around each other. And where we are moving out and seeing God do something great and fantastic through us as we grow up in him and live for his good and glorious purposes. There's a quote I was listening to a sermon this week, and a preacher quoted this, and I, I really liked it, and I want to read it to you today. It's from a man named C.T. Studd, which is just an awesome name. I wish my last name was Studd. Uh, uh, anyway, so C.T. Studd, he, he was, a, he was, a, he was a, a pastor, preacher, teacher. He died in 1930. Um, when he retired from the pastorate, um, he um, decided to spend his retirement in Sudan, where he would die proclaiming the gospel to an African people that hadn't heard the gospel. And this was in the latter years of his life from Sudan. This is a letter he wrote back to the church. He says, too long have we been waiting for another, too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build The God of heaven, he will fight for us as we him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and the minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear, before the world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him, and we will live, and we will die for him. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign in sight, we will have a real holiness of God, not the sticky stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. In this text, Jesus is calling to his disciples to something more, to a real faith that is crystal clear, to a consecrated life who live everything and all things for him and his glory, and to experience a deep intimacy with him remembering what he has done in the past, in history and in time, and remembering what he has done in our lives. And deciding, ultimately, that Jesus is God, I am his, and whatever he wants or desires, I'm in. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your grace and your love and your kindness. Jesus, we believe that you came and you died and you rose and you are seated on high 
We believe that you fed 5,000, that you fed 4,000, that, that you, you are the bread of life, that you are the better Moses, that you are the ultimate fulfillment. You are the prophet of prophets. You are the king of kings. You are, you are matchless. You are holy. And you desire not a piece of us, not a portion of us. You desire all of us. And collectively this morning as we worship, as we as we, as we conclude, Lord, help us to say to you simply, we are yours. And let the implications of that flow into every aspect of our life. Lord, help us to surrender. For the person, Lord, today that, that has not come underneath your rule and reign, who is the skeptic, who's pushing you away, Lord, soften their heart today. Help them turn toward you to love you and cherish you and live for you. Jesus, help us to take heart what you've said. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand, and as you stand, the altars are open for you to come and pray whatever God's laid on your heart. And I'm available if you wanna talk. And as we sing this song, might we worship God and might we respond as he leads.